Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of FYI, the Public Library's podcast. I'm Brendan Dowling with the Public Library Association. Today, I'll be talking to Eugen Grace Wirtz about a recently released novel, Everything Belongs to Us. Thank you so much for being here today, Grace. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited. The book follows three college students in 1970s South Korea. Ji Soon, a political activist who's also the daughter of a wealthy industrial tycoon, Soonam, a middle-class college student, and Namin, a brilliant scholar whose college career is a chance for her to break free of her family's cycle of poverty. Now, I read on your website that the origin of the story came from talking to your own parents about their college experience in the late 70s in South Korea. Can you talk about how those stories served as the genesis of this book? What had happened was I was in college myself. I was 19 or 20, and I was trying to decide on a major, and I thought I was going to have a very casual conversation with my father about um, his college experience to maybe get a hint as to what I should do in my own life. And when I asked him, oh, Dad, you know, what was your college experience like? He very casually said, oh, um, your mother and I were dating in college, and um, we didn't go to classes that often because the campus was often shut down due to protests. And I was very interested and very surprised because I had not known that there was such a prevalence of um, political unrest during that time. So that was the mid-1970s that he was in college at Seoul National University, which is the university that's um, being featured in my novel. And so when he said that, I began to start researching the time period of the 70s and realized that that was the height of um, President Park Jong-hee's administration. He was president from 1963 to 79, and it was very... um, volatile because the economy was just booming um, year after year at a growth rate of like over 10%, but he was very politically repressive. So that became the inspiration for why I became interested in the time period. And then later on, as I asked the more specific questions about their experience, then that became sort of the, um, the personal color of the story. How was it different being a college student back then, um, especially in, in South Korea versus today? We think of college as a time of um, great freedom and exploration and independence, and um, especially in the 70s um, and earlier and a little bit later, too, college was a a time of freedom in some respects because you were sprung free from very gender-segregated schools, and this is the first time that you're allowed to interact with members of the opposite sex, Um, and so you were expected to court right away and then find a life partner, and then um, marry that person. So there was a very, very short on-ramp from childhood. And and by childhood, I mean like you could be 20 years old in Korean culture and you would still be considered more or less a child because you didn't have a lot of agency in your own decisions because you would be expected to follow what your parents wanted for your life. And this was very much the case in um, the three characters that I'm describing. And then as soon as you get into college, you might have a brief period of relative freedom, but then you were expected to become an adult right away. And so um, particularly during this time, because there was so much rapid change in terms of economic progress and transformation, almost the country was growing up uh, at the same time that the students were growing up. And so you'll see that um, some readers have said to me, well, it's very odd to me that they would get so serious in relationships so relatively quickly. And, and that's a different culture, I think, from what we consider normal in Western culture. We consider you know, the getting to know period to be years-long process. 
And in the case of Namin, whose college is also a chance for her to vault out of her social class or her economic class, certainly. That character is very near and dear to my heart because it was based on my mom's history and uh, story. So she is the youngest child of three and was raised by a single mom because her father passed away when she was two months old. So he passed away in 54, which um, is right after the end of the Korean War, which was 53. And so um, she grew up in pretty um, straightened financial circumstances. And for her education, as it was for Nami in this character, education was the path out of her family's difficulties. So um, I based Kyungi Middle School, which Namin gets into by tests um, based on her story. And then um, the town where she grew up is called Biari, which is the town that Namin grows up. And it's a working class town. It's a market town. And for a long time, my mom said, you know, she was ashamed to say, this is where I came from. She would say the town next to it that was slightly better off. Namin goes to college and gets into Seoul National University with the burden of her family's poverty on her shoulders. Namin is also the youngest in her family, and her older sister is working at a shoe factory to help finance her college education. How were those educational choices made about which child was able to go to college? So normally, the oldest son would get those privileges because the oldest son in most traditional Korean families would be considered the person in charge of taking care of everybody's parents. By everybody, I mean the siblings. So you could have literally 12 siblings, but the burden of taking care of the parents falls to the oldest son. So in this case, it's a little bit of a different scenario because the oldest daughter um, earns for the younger daughter to launch them out of poverty. And so um, the reason I decided to do that was because in my mom's family, that was what happened. My aunt, who is my mom's older sister, was the one who worked, and she didn't work in a factory. She actually worked in a a piano selling showroom, but um, she was responsible for earning the money because my mom was particularly gifted at school. Was it a big surprise to you hearing the stories from your parents when you were a college student? It was a surprise in the sense that I didn't know just how oppressive and in many ways violent it had been, Um, but it was not a surprise once I started rewinding my life. And so um, when I read the history, I realized, oh, President Park was assassinated in 79. I was born three months later in 1980. And um, while I was still in Korea, um, I remember I have these very like uh, vivid memories of going places and um, the adults are rushing to close the car windows because the smell of tear gas was in the air, and I was complaining, oh, my eyes hurt, my, te- um, my, my nose hurts. And so I think protests were just such a part of daily life, and the government um, suppression of them were such a part of daily life that you would take a small child out and run into them all the time, you know. And so when I realized the history, I was kind of able to piece it back together, like reverse engineer it, mm-hmm my parents wanted to infuse me with, like, national pride. And so they didn't tell me the story of, oh, how there was a dictatorship and how, you know, he suppressed the students and the labor activists and things like that. They told me about, you know, the amazing things that had happened in Korea to, you know, overcome post-war crisis and and become um, the Asian tiger. Those were the stories that they focused on. So can you talk a little bit about the different political factions that made up this time period? That was really important to me and fascinated me because, as you say, 
And when I started this novel five years ago, so, you know, this was right after Occupy Wall Street and um, the financial crisis here in America. And, and so I saw this huge class gap um, and the political fallout of that. And I thought, wow, this is uncanny, very similar to um, some of the issues that were coalescing in uh, Korea at the time. So because it's a very um, state-engineered economic quote-unquote miracle, I, you know, I, I put quotes on the word miracle because it was very intentionally engineered by the government. And so um, the Chebor, the Chebor is the national, multinational conglomerations that somebody like Sisan's father uh, was the leader of, um, were given great direct support from the state in order to um, have the, the success that success that they did and the success that they had was um, meant to benefit the country. They were hoping for sort of like that trickle-down economics that we now in America think does not work um, for a good reason, but um, because it was such a top-down and authoritarian government in Korea, it did work. And I want to switch tracks a little bit. Another big theme in your book is the different female characters bucking under the conventional role of the mother and having conflicting opinions about how they fit in or don't fit into that role? Korea being a very gendered society, there are clear expectations for how women should behave, how girls should behave, how daughters should behave, how mothers should behave. And so it, there's no doubt in my mind that both Chizun and Namin being um, girls and women growing up in this time period would have a very clear idea of what was expected of them. And I have a notion that Namin particularly did not wish to be constrained by that in terms of limiting her career options. So she is somebody that has, as I said, the weight of poverty and the weight of her family's expectations on her shoulders. But I see her as somebody who had personal ambitions, who really wanted to see how far she could go with her own brain and with her own um, heart and passion and drive. And when I see these characters, I know I created them, but I see them longing for a different option because at the time, the options that were given to them were so constrained. Even with Chisan, um, her mother, her biological mother, passes away in a pretty traumatic fashion because she's been, and I'm not giving anything away, she's been sort of bullied to, to death by um, her father. And then she's kind of raised by this surrogate mother who is the housekeeper. And she has a very complicated relationship, I think, with that because, you know, she didn't receive the nurturing and the care that she wanted from her biological mother, but maybe at the same time she didn't want that because the attention that she's getting from her other parent, her father, is so suffocating in many respects. So I think that um, I created these characters intentionally to wish for freedom and it went in opposite directions for them. For Tizan, she wanted personal freedom. And for Namin, she wanted economic freedom. We tend to look back on the generation before us as if they're kind of carbon copies of photographs and as if somehow they um, are more mature than us because they're earlier in time than us, you know? Mm -hmm. And I thought, wow, you know, these are 19-year-olds who are dealing with incredibly um, high-stakes decisions. And um, for these girls, young women particularly, um, they're, they're quite prideful and um, have a lot of complex issues that, you know, probably could do well with a lot of modern therapy. But at the time, that was not a luxury that was afforded to them, either culturally or 
uh, financially, and so they're making decisions almost out of fear um, rather than out of uh, you know what would be the best rational choice. You know, and I thought that was I hope anyway I thought that was uh, realistic because you know when I look back on my own life. You often make choices when you're 19 or 20 out of fear rather than out of what you hope would be the best possible choice. Have you had any reaction from South Korean readers? It's really like a huge hope of mine that the book would be translated into Korean, and I'd love to hear what South Koreans think. And I think that um, you know it would be a dramatically different response than from Americans, just because this is a um, touchy part of South Korean history that particularly um, my parents' generation, don't love to talk about. Since this is for the Public Library Association, what has been your relationship with public libraries, whether in the States or in South Korea? When I came to America as a child, my mom took us to the library multiple times a week, and that was the only place that I felt comfortable in the beginning because I didn't speak the language. Uh, When I went to school, I like school, um, but when you're small and you don't speak the language and you're surrounded by other people who don't look like you, it can be very disorienting and traumatic, and it was at first for me, but when I went to the library, I felt um, excited, I felt free, um, the librarians were always so nice to us, and so I have such wonderful memories of exploring the library in our town, and one day I'd love to write an essay about how anywhere in the world, whether in this country or, you know, where I travel outside of the country, I always track down the library because it situates me. I remember one time I heard Anthony Bourdain say, anywhere he goes, the first place he goes is a public market because it situates him and he gets to know what the culture of that place is. And so for me, I do I do it with libraries and it makes me feel like the smell of the books, the scent of the books. It makes me feel like this is my place and then I can venture out from here. The book is called Everything Belongs to Us. It's currently out, um, and it's just a a beautiful, engrossing read um, about a part of history that probably a lot of American readers don't know much about. So thank you so much. Thank you so much, Brendan. This was a very good conversation. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of FII, the Public Library's podcast. I'd like to thank today's guest, Eugene Grace Wirtz. Be sure to check out her debut novel, Everything Belongs to Us, and be sure to check out more of our author interviews at publiclibrariesonline.org.